welcome back to the Thundersticks Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Kreider, and today I am going to be recapping the All-Star Weekend, Isaiah Joe and his big-time performance in the starting unit, and I'm going to wrap things up talking about the Oklahoma City Blue and the big batch of changes they have made in the last 10 days. Last time when we left off here, I was discussing the trade deadline, kind of getting you guys ready for All-Star Weekend, and we got that all last weekend. So I kind of just want to go event by event and kind of just give my two cents on everything, obviously leading up to Shea Gilgis-Alexander's first All-Star appearance with Team Giannis. But Rising Stars Challenge kicking things off, I actually really enjoyed how this model was utilized. I know previously it's just been two separate teams going at it. We've seen combinations of USA versus World. The four teams of eight seems a lot better, and I think um, this was a good change by the league, but I really love how they did the roster construction. Yes, you have four teams that are you know picking, but you have a lot of G League guys making up one of the teams with Jason Terry, who has experience with the NBA G League, of course, with the Ignite. So they actually played up against the Thunders pairing of Josh Giddy and Jalen Williams with Team Joe Kim Noah, and they didn't get it done. Um, G League team falled, but Josh Giddy and Jalen Williams, they were able to get on to the finals, final score of 40-32, to 32, playing a 40 in the semis, 25 in the finals, quick, quick games here. Quentin Grimes was just a monster for Team Joe Kim to start things out. Giddy, three points and six assists in the semis, and Jalen Williams goes for four points and five rebounds, two of four overall and ended up missing a three. But they were able to kind of claw things out. Were they the ones scoring all the time? Not really, but they found their role, and Josh Giddy almost had more assists than the entirety of Team Jason. He had six assists. Team Jason had seven. Just want to point out, Mac McClung had 10 points in this one, and Kenny Lofton had seven as well. I was really interested to see how that team played in particular because you have a lot of guys in the G League that are just on the cusp of breaking out to the NBA. Is everyone going to be a ball hog? It really didn't turn into that. A lot of the shots were high quality on both sides, but they move on. Josh Gideon, Jalen Williams end up taking on Team Pau Gasol in the finals and once again, kind of quiet for both of them. Both of them scored two points in this one. Jalen Williams went over three and only had his points at the charity stripe. Giddy gets three rebounds, but just did not go their way. 25 to 20 in favor of Team Pau Gasol and Jose Alvarado taking MVP of the event. So it's fairly quiet from a Thunder perspective, uh, but it was nice to see them back at it to get in on the All-Star festivities. And you move on to the skills challenge. You know, very much of this same where they kind of move in this new format. They've used it the last couple of seasons. I really like how they brought back the Audentacumpo brothers. And I know Giannis didn't play. They had to plug in Drew Holiday. But just having um, Alex in there really was awesome. Someone from the Wisconsin herd. And fun fact, they had a charity 
night where they were selling jerseys with cheese curds as the logo. You could have gotten an Enacumpo cheese curd jersey for like $200. That's a steal, to be quite honest with you. Um, so if you're a G League fan or just a Giannis or Adenokounmpo fan at all, you could have picked up an Alex Adenokounmpo cheese curd jersey for $200. That's an absolute steal. But they end up not doing too great. The rookies don't do too great. Uh, there were some good moments. I'd say the best moment was when the Utah Jazz trio just went off in uh, passing. Walker Kessler seemed to be the star of the show. I think I'd give him the MVP award. Um, and just really anybody on the jazz for making a bucket in the shooting contest. I mean, my goodness, that was a tremendous low. You see the rookies barely clawed together like two, three points after the bar seemed really low with the identicumpos. Um, so the jazz got it done, but man, you're looking at that thinking, did somebody put like WD 40 on the inside of this rim? Because just nothing was falling in. Everything was just bouncing like crazy. You have the three-point contest right after it. Is this going to be a Saturday night fiasco? Sort of was. I thought that Kevin Huerter was going to bring it home. Uh, He had eight points in this contest. And you have to remember the new construction of the three-point contest. And the NBA, it's a business. You add in new things, and they add in the three-point money ball shot. They've done this again for the last couple of seasons. I think last go-around, it might have been the Ruffles three-point challenge, but now it's Starry, the uh, Sprite 7-Up competitor. Um, I've actually seen them. They've been giving stuff around at Oklahoma State uh, Starry products. So I've had it myself. I'd say it, it tastes very similar to the two. So I'll give them that. But you add in this three ball, and it just inflates the scores again. They had the system prior to, I think, 2004, where there was no money ball rack. You just had 25 shots. You had the money ball to cap things off at five. So if you had over 20, you were insane. If you had 25 points before that, you were actually insane. Like, whenever Larry Bird had his career day at the three-point contest, if you would have put him into today's game, that's like 35, 40 points just because of how much more inflated things have gotten. So the newer model where there's 40 possible points, this is not the newest one. Um, You know, you see like 25 points. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Now you add in these two three-point shots. And whenever I see 25 points, that's just a normal, normal occurrence. Much less, you know, if you get 20 points or something, that's not insane anymore just because they've added those in. So I understand it. Is it a little bit gimmicky? Sure. You can't really fault the league for it, though. Um, You can fault guys for not scoring more than 10 points in this event, though. I mean, goodness gracious. You could just hit two of those three-point shots, and you're good. Uh, Those three balls with the stars. And, I mean, technically, you wouldn't be at 10 yet, but you get what I mean. You'd be pretty freaking close. So, not a lot happened in the first round. You get to the finals where two Pacers are going at it with Tyrese Halliburton and Buddy Heald. And then you have Damian Lillard. And Lillard takes it home, rips it away from the Pacers. And Reggie Miller, who's in the booth, uh, so he gets that. And then you move on to the slam dunk contest. And this is what I was really excited for. And if you've been following the G League, this is absolutely what you're excited for. You go out there, and Mac McClung is just 
not really talked about much. And from a media perspective, like when you bring someone in from the G League on two week notice, you either have to push out a story, you just kind of don't talk about it too much. They sort of went with the latter. Shams kind of broke the news. Woj followed that he would be in the dunk contest. This is before he had his two-way deal with the 76ers. He was just with the Delaware Bluecoats, and everybody was kind of up in arms about it, saying, you know, the dunk contest is ruined. It's over. Why are we bringing guys in that aren't even in the NBA? You can't get stars in. Now we're bringing G-leaguers in. They just didn't know, you know, and... He gets moved up to a two-way deal, so he's repping a 76ers jersey now. He is in the league, but people are still complaining, and people still really don't know much about him just because of how uh, quick it was. You know, he's not really a household name or anything, and yeah, people are complaining, but I still think this is a very great move by the NBA, by the NBA G League. As you can see, basically the entire weekend, they were promoting the G League at levels that I don't think we've seen in prior seasons. They have been, but this season in particular, you've seen them shift a lot more to promoting the G League, which I think is awesome. And you bring in a dunker like Mac McClung, who is deserving of this type of stage. Rookie of the year last season in South Bay, he's been destroying yet again with the Delaware Bluecoats, and he almost made the Golden State Warriors roster over the offseason, passed up multiple seven-figure deals to play in the G League in hopes of getting the call-up again. So his story's been crazy, gets moved up into the bright lights in Salt Lake City, and just dominates. I mean, he starts things out jumping over two people, pins the ball against the backboard and dunks it down. He's still jumping over people again. Like It could have been all 50s on all four of his dunks, I get it, you know, like the new dunk system or how they score it kind of made things a little difficult, but basically a perfect, only 149 as the blemish. Um, I do think it is a little bit disappointing that had he not had an insane dunk to end things out a 540 that he could have just not won uh, because the scoring system, I think ideally you want to go the six through 10 model instead of the 40 to 50 I get it because if someone struggles if someone doesn't make an attempt they're basically out in that previous system but you know you were seeing dunks by guys that are like 48s 49s that's not in the same ballpark as what Mac McClung was pulling off I mean everybody had their cameras out and McClung's going up with the other guys you know, you might be scrolling to the camera app, but like, it's not the same thing, you know? So McClung just steals the show. 540 goes down, doesn't miss a single dunk. Everyone's going crazy. And he just had himself the best week of his career. So deserving. People who were looking at him, if they knew him previously, probably knew him from high school, just because he was a hoop mixtape type of legend, house of highlights, his dunks were wild. And he even paid homage to it in some of his dunks with his jersey. But people didn't really recognize him from Texas Tech, from Georgetown, from the G League. He makes a name for himself, and people know Mac McClung now. Uh, and I think he's one of the best guys to put on that stage. He's been in the G League for the previous two seasons. And through it all, I mean, he's just kept an amazing attitude. I think that's something that kind of permeates through the G League. You have to 
have that high attitude of trying to get in, trying to get that call up, and he finally gets it. But even through that, you know, he wasn't like cocky or anything. He was very, very humble in speaking to reporters, and that's why I think a lot of respect goes to him. He talked about how, yeah, he was the guy that was kind of put on this big stage, but let's not forget about the G League, and, you know, he was just the guy when there are plenty of other guys that were deserving of these types of chances. There's not that many spots, all things considered, in the NBA. This is taking into account, you know, the 15 standard contracts you might have and the 17 in total when you add in the two-way contracts. That That's not enough to really showcase the talent in basketball. And G League guys could make the climb. There are players that are overseas that could play in the NBA, were previously in the G League and moved on because just financially it makes more sense to go overseas when it's not uh, readily available to make that jump to the NBA. So yeah, you're looking at a combined quick math here. Um, yeah, you're looking at a combined like 510 spots. And that just doesn't do it in terms of how much talent is worldwide in this game. So to crack into the NBA is such a big accomplishment. For Mac to do that, for him to get a shoe deal in the same week, and to him, uh, you know, kind of highlighting the G League as a platform, much, much respect to him. And, you know, he, he ended on a high note, actually, because he didn't participate in the next up game for the G Leaguers on Sunday. That game came and went. If you guys aren't following the G League, you're like, man, it doesn't really matter. I was really hyped up for this personally um, because I wanted to see how these guys played. Yes, it wasn't nationally televised. It wasn't played in the main arena, uh, the Utah Jazz Arena. It was played elsewhere. But, you know, they still have that bigger platform. A lot of guys in the league are packed together. You can go catch the game before the All-Star game. I thought there'd be a lot of defense. I thought people would be trying to clip together some highlights to kind of make that push. And it didn't really pan out that way. It was a very high scoring contest where game ended 178 to 162. So, I mean, some of the names, if you guys have been following the G League, Luca Garza, he was MVP. Sharif Cooper, 27 points as well for Team Luca, which won. Uh, and then on the other side, Nemias Keda of the Stockton Kings had 22 points. And I'd actually say he's one of the most NBA-ready guys on a two-way contract right now. Very, very good at center. Um, but also, you had Xavier Simpson, who had eight points in a hook shot. Really good year for him. Great to see him on this stage. He didn't play a lot, but he put up some points, put up some output, and got that shot off in Salt Lake City. So, much props to him, the former OKC Blue Guard right there. Leads us up to the All-Star game, though, and SGA gets his first appearance. Everyone's kind of looking forward to seeing what he can do on the, the big stage, and he did a lot in his minutes. He only played 10 minutes, but 9 points and 7 assists, that's very impressive in that time span. And, you know, had you... And not really paid attention to the box scores, you'd probably say, hey, seven assists, that might have been the most in the entire game because not a lot was going on in terms of uh, defensively. Like, you didn't have to pass to kick open to an open guy. Everybody had their open shot. It was basically shoot around for this year's All-Star game. But he, he was able to, 
you know, put the Thunder on notice, put himself on notice. Fun fact about this one, 10 minutes, that's the least amount of playing time he has had probably, I'd say, ever. If we could go that far back, stats we have for sure are college and professionally. This is the least um, in those rankings. So he's always played over 10 minutes when he was at Kentucky. And then also uh, his professional career with the Clippers, Thunder, and even when he played internationally with Team Canada. So take that how you will. I don't really think this counts. This is just those like super nitpicky stats that I'll bring up. And I was like, that's so stupid. But I think it's cool. I think it's something to kind of point out because there wasn't a ton uh, to point out exactly with the game. You know, as a fan, you don't expect every All-Star game to be like the 2003 one. I mean, that was like peak All-Star. But have a little bit of defense, that'd be nice. It just hasn't really panned out that way the last couple seasons. And with the target score, you did get flashes of it. The game was a little bit too out of hand this time, though. So you never really saw that much down the wire. It was just kind of chucking half-court shots to give him extra possessions. And uh didn't really pan out exactly how the Elam ending is set up to do so. But you still get three guys in the Thunder camp. Isaiah Joe doesn't make the All-Star game, or not the All-Star game, excuse me, the three-point contest, despite leading the league in three-point percentage. There's a lot of different cases of catch-and-shoot guys and bench players who just missed the cut, even though their percentages were a lot better than, let's say, Julius Randle, um, or some of the other guys too. But yeah, um, you can make arguments for a lot of guys. It's a shame, but from what was circulating online, it seemed like they wanted to kind of put more of those like flashier guys on there, some of the all-stars. So it is what it is. If Joe stays on pace, he'll be in next year, though. Do not worry about that. Continuing along, though, I want to talk about the Thunder's last two games. I talked about Isaiah Joe and his time in Phoenix, but you have to start things out with the opener of their back-to-back set going up against the Utah Jazz in Utah. And what a game this ended up being. I mean, you have everybody on deck for the Thunder. No real injuries here outside of, you know, who has pre- who's previously been on the injury report. And then for Utah, Colin Sexton's out. But you still have kind of your main core intact. Sexton is a big piece of this team, though. You can't forget that. I mean, this one could not have been written up any crazier. And normally when I do these recaps, I like to go quarter by quarter, talk about some of the highlight possessions. But I think the important part is just kind of moving along to what you had in the fourth quarter and then also in overtime. I mean, this was back and forth virtually all the way. And there were multiple opportunities for the Thunder to pull away. Also, I'd say the Jazz as well. But, I mean, OKC had built up their lead to 10, almost. Actually, it was at 10, nearing the fourth quarter. It got ticked down a little bit. But they had about a six-point lead for a good chunk of the fourth quarter and it slid away slowly but surely in this fourth to where you know it's kind of up in arms you're talking one possession game and in the final moments of the fourth quarter you finally see the Utah Jazz get something going and they were able 
to get the final couple strikes back in here. Uh, ended up starting with SGA splitting a pair of free throws about two minutes to go. Two-point advantage for the Thunder. And then Laurie Markkinen, who could not miss anything. He gets a tip-in. 104 all. Dort gets fouled, hits a pair of free throws. Two-point lead for the Thunder with a minute remaining. Back and forth. No good, no good, no good. Utah, they end up getting their final possession with 16.4 seconds, or 16.7 seconds remaining in this game. And absolute craziness ensues. Markinen misses a shot. Kessler gets the rebound. He kicks it over to Kelly Olenek. He misses it. Third attempt. Kessler gets the ball and puts it up and in with five seconds to go. OKC, they try. They actually get what I would consider a very good look off an Isaiah Joe penetration. Reverse layup is swatted by Walker Kessler, though, and you're going to an extra five minutes. Just, if you were watching in attendance, and if you were listening to the broadcast, just eruption was going on in Salt Lake City, you would have thought it was still the All-Star game. And there was good reason to. I mean, Walker Kessler was... Dominant. That was his seventh block in the game when he had it against Joe. And Laurie Markkinen had 37 points in regulation. 106-106 going in overtime. And you can't help but think, man, those closing four or five possessions, Utah was just going crazy on the offensive glass. It looked like a page taken out of the 2020-21 squad where Ennis Cancer was dropping 23 rebounds with the Portland Trailblazers against us. Like, you can't really be allowing that type of activity, uh, but they definitely got that to close things out, and they had a little bit of momentum going into the overtime period, and this is still where Laurie Markkinen just continued to pile things up. He didn't really start things out for him. It was more of a back-and-forth battle yet again, uh, where actually, I mean, OKC was looking above for a bit there. I'll talk about why in a second. But Laurie Markkinen is really the one that put in the final strikes of this game. He had a three-pointer early in overtime, but the dagger came in the closing moments yet again. Utah's trailing by two. They need to find a basket in their final possession. Laurie Markkinen launches a left-wing three, almost a prayer, I would say. And he gets fouled by Lou Dort on the shot. The Thunder tried to challenge it, unsuccessful. He, he goes in his landing space, and Markkinen hits three crucial free throws. He finishes with 43 points, and OKC gets a really good look. SGA has a mid-range shot, tries to bank it in. Looked like it was going to go in, popped out at the very last second. Utah wins this one 120-119. to 119. I mean, it was... It was a very special game for both sides. There weren't really a ton of negatives you could take away from either side here. But, um, man, Laurie Markkinen, he really put down some emphatic statements in terms of the most improved player race. And I don't think it's really much of a battle anymore. I know to start the season, there was a lot of people that were vying for SGA getting that honor. I still think there's going to be that camp, but Laurie Markkinen going from a guy averaging 12, 13 points per game in his last couple of seasons, almost looking like he peaked as a rookie, 
um, to now dropping 43 points in overtime, being the star of the Utah Jazz, a team that is still very much in the hunt for the playoffs. It's special. So he was a wonder to watch. 15 of 28 from the floor, 10 of 10 from the line. And then Walker Kessler, who they got in the Rudy Gobert trade, looking like Rudy Gobert, finishing the game with eight blocks on the contest. Excuse me, seven blocks on the contest. But I think you also need to look at the rebounds. 18 rebounds. It really was a blast from the past. If you guys were following along two, three seasons ago, uh, where they just couldn't get rebounds, and it's a very different team now. I'm a lot more confident. It wasn't like just an overbearing out rebounding clinic by the Utah Jazz, but you know that final stretch definitely had shades of it. OKC ultimately had more offensive rebounds in this game, though, which is you know very crazy to think about. I think you give the MVP. Outside of Shea, obviously, 39 points in this game, and he went 15 of 19 at the line. It was just a back and forth between him and Laurie, really. But Jalen Williams, Jay Will, deserves his flowers. He went 4 of 7 in this game. If you look at the stats, you might be thinking, well, was he really the star of this game? He gave up some crucial rebounds, but offensively, he gave a punch at the right moments for this team. 11 points on the night, 3 of 4 from distance, and the Jazz, they were going all in on penetrations, they're gonna give 3 point shots away to centers, and Jay Will made them pay. He didn't shoot a lot of threes in his two seasons at Arkansas, but he's almost made more in the pros than he had across those two seasons. I think he has about 8 or 9 more to go until he reaches that benchmark, it's about 24-25 threes. I remember off the top of my head he had with the Razorbacks but if he keeps up with it he's going to be surpassing it in his rookie season with the Thunder just great activity from him on the offensive end and he really was that second option I'd say in the closing segments of this game Josh Giddy had a double double in his own right 18 points and 11 rebounds and Kenrich Williams had 16 points off the bench going 7 of 10 but this was a heck of a way to start off their return from All-Star Weekend. One thing I was looking at, he ultimately didn't get it, was if Frank Jackson got to play for the Utah Jazz. He got called up recently, and he had time in the preseason with the Thunder a couple seasons ago. He didn't play, but another 10-day, and Chris Dunn did. He was pretty effective with 11 points off the bench. So, you get that game, and you roll into the second game of a back-to-back to play the Phoenix Suns. And this kind of loops back to what I was talking about in the intro, what I was talking about into my segue. Isaiah Joe has himself a night. SGA not available for this game. You end up plugging Isaiah Joe in in his place. And I think at this point, you can confidently say that he has earned it. Anytime that he gets a minute uptick, the production also gets an uptick. And that's a recipe for success. And you've seen, even in the past like month, this is where we're at now in the NBA, where anybody can drop 40, but it happens. Cam Thomas with back-to-back 40-point performances with the Nets when he gets the green light. And it was kind of a similar situation where he doesn't get a lot of minutes, but you know that he's a very good scoring, kind of outside-in player. Isaiah Joe, very much the same, shooting 45% from distance. He can handle the ball and even create for himself. You give him the spotlight up against a Sun squad that is without Kevin Durant. 
Obviously, with that trade, there's no Mikael Bridges. There's no Cameron Johnson. You're still looking at a three-headed monster with Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and DeAndre Ayton, though. And he started off hot as a pistol. Nine points in the first quarter. 12 in the second quarter. 21 points going into halftime in 16 minutes. Five of eight from three. He had five of the Thunder's seven first half threes. And the Phoenix Suns only had six threes made in the entire first half. So he was playing a completely different game. And he was having the best individual performance easily in this first half. You may say with 21 points, they had to be winning. Still a very big back and forth where nobody could miss a shot. 65 to 60 going into halftime with the Phoenix Suns up. Really just a two-headed monster, though, with Joe's 21. And then J-Dub had 12 points going 4 of 8 from the floor. A little bit more of a spread-out attack from the Suns, but they had a surprise score in Josh Kogi, 15 points in his start uh, of that first half. This game never really was out of reach for either side. Now, Oklahoma City, it was kind of a, a fight for a lot of it, I would say. But they still kept their footing in here. They were down as large as 14 in this fourth quarter. They were down 14 multiple times in the fourth quarter. But just as teams, you know, teams of seasons ago were doing it, just to, they've kind of ingrained in their identity. They're always going to fight back. They're always going to have those blows. Uh, it just kind of came a little bit too late. If they had another 10 minutes in this game, sure, they could have got a couple extra strikes in, but the timer struck zero, shot clock goes off, the Phoenix Suns end up taking this game 124 to 115, but without your best player, who basically has been the identity of your offense, not just this season, but the past two seasons, to fill in like this, I'd say it was very impressive, and Isaiah Joe was clearly their top performer on the evening. He neared 30 points in this game, ends up with 28 points, going 11 of 17 from the floor, 6 of 12 from distance, and gets 7 rebounds as well. So he had that commanding performance that just kind of keeps, you know, keeps on par with what he's been doing. (laughs) Um, He has been lethal, particularly from distance, 6 of 12 there. Uh, That's definitely going to check the boxes. Jay Will still ends up with a pair of threes. He's two of four here, 10 points, five rebounds, and five assists. Whenever he was initially picked in the second round, I think it was a wild card selection. Like, if you're looking at his draft notes and you're looking at what people were talking about, it was a lot more about he leads the NCAA in charges. And we've seen advanced stats through Twitter, which amazing for people to dig this up. I think in the past seven years, he has been the most efficient player in terms of drawing charges. Per minute, he has the most. So he has been dominant in that category, but the other advancements in his game have been special. I already talked about the three-point category coming from the Suns game, and he carries it, or excuse me, from the Jazz game, carries it over to the Suns game as well. OKC was really playing through Joe, I'd say, um, but they are still able to Kind of weasel in to some other solid performances. Jalen Williams, J-Dub, ends up with 22 points, going 8 of 14 from the floor. Lou Dort had 17 on 5 of 17 shooting. And Trey Mann joined the party with 11 points on 4 of 7 shooting. 
the Suns just kind of had a bit more on their side in the closing segments of the game. Booker had 25. Akogi stayed put after that monstrous first half. He still had 15. Uh, but that spread attack was just all they really needed. They ended up having six players finish in double figures. So they go 0 of 2 in this back-to-back set. But there's a lot of good things that you can take away from this going ahead into the next game. I want to talk about the upcoming schedule and kind of what's going on. But first, you need to look at the recent news surrounding the Oklahoma City Blue and even the Oklahoma City Thunder. This was something I discussed in the last podcast, and it actually came to fruition. I discussed the idea after these two trades. Justin Jackson gets dealt to Oklahoma City. They had him two seasons ago, and they had a mutual parting so he could play on a contender, ended up getting a ring with the Bucks. Um, but he comes back again, and with the timelines just not really aligning, made sense to waive him, open up that roster spot, and they did. So they had one open roster spot, and there were only a couple options that I thought were on the table. OKC, they don't tend to go elsewhere when picking up players on two-way contracts. Maybe over the offseason they will. Uh, But in season, if they're bringing somebody up, it's going to come in-house. It's something that Sam Presti hasn't directly stated, but just kind of the way that the organization is run. You have the OKC Blue playing in the Paycom Center. You can just take like a two-minute drive over to see them in their practice facility as well. So it's really one giant group between the NBA organization and the Thunder, and then the Blue, which is very nice uh, for them and multiple other organizations have decided to go that route as well having them fairly close together instead of spread out Uh, and the advantage is you get scouting you kind of understand who fits in the best and I talked about that if a two-way player was to get upgraded between Eugene and Lindy Lindy would be more of just kind of that fill in the role of a sharpshooter Eugene is more of that well-rounded player that fits the mold of guys that have been upgraded in the past Aaron Wiggins being the most recent one, he's as well-rounded as it gets. I think he's the closest comparison to Eugene in terms of play style. Lou Dort got brought up. Yeah, he was electric on both sides of the floor, but the three ball really wasn't there with the blue yet. Uh, So he was more of a defensive mastermind who had good driving abilities. I guess you could even compare that to Eugene a little bit too, because it's not like he's shooting 40% from three either. Uh, But I'd say hustle is really the one word that connects a lot of these call-up guys. And I'd say Eugene fits the bill um, a little bit more than Lindy Waters would in terms of who I would have expected to get called up. So he ended up getting the call-up. The only other option outside of those two that I really could chalk up uh, was that DJ Wilson would get a one-year deal. Now, he's still recovering from injury, but... He wouldn't have been eligible for a two-way contract because he's been in the NBA for five seasons. After four years being in the NBA, you were cut off from that contract. So he's kind of expired that. He'd need to be on the 15-man roster of an organization or on a 10-day deal to uh, get that opportunity. So with him not getting that, takes him out of the running, takes a couple players also out of the running with that, one of them. Andre Roberson, I saw on Twitter people were talking about him getting a call up. Just wouldn't be possible. So the shortlist that I mocked up included Sasha Calais-Jones, Olivier Saar, Robert Woodard II, 
and then also Jemias Ramsey and Jaden Shackelford. I think you could have taken out Ramsey and Shackelford, not based on talent. I think both of them are impressive as it gets, but they just don't really need backcourt guys right now. It comes down to front court pieces, and out of the three, I think you probably look at Saar the most, Sasha Kalei Jones, and then Robert Woodard because he just doesn't have a three-point shot exactly grained in him. They end up going with Olivier Saar, though, and you get a guy back on a two-way deal. They had him on his on a two-way contract last season, and he was very impressive. Did he have more opportunities last year compared to this one? Of course, you know, he even got to start a game or two last year with his squad, but every call-up and every opportunity he had, he made the most out of it. I mean, he was shooting in the 40s from distance last year. He was stretching the floor out, even inside, he was looking good. Looked like a decent prospect, and they didn't initially get him on a two-way contract this offseason. The Portland Trailblazers did, so there was other value around the league. A lot of people were kind of clued into Olivier Saar and his game, and because of an injury that he suffered early on in the fall, Blazers went another route, they released him, now he's recovered from injury, and OKC picks him right back up. So he's used to the system, Chet Holmgren being out obviously uh, doesn't help, he's been out this entire time. Now Mike Muscala getting dealt to the Boston Celtics opens up a void at center. I think Dario Sarge could slide in, but it's not as natural of a, as a fit as Muscala would have been. So bringing in another center presence in Sar, I say is a really good pickup and probably the best fit for what they had in the OKC Blue realm. So he's back on board and uh, now it kind of leads to some dominoes falling in the OKC Blue organization, but... It's very, very nice to see Sar get that opportunity, and he's already traveling with the team. You saw him on the bench in this back-to-back set. The other side of this, though, is with that 17th roster spot being filled again, you see movement around the G League, and the G League trade deadline is approaching. We're seeing deals left and right. Last year, they made bank. Not only picking up Jamias Ramsey, but also Robert Woodard this second. Two former second round picks, and they're still on the roster. So that's a good sign for them. But you have, you know, those two guys, this go around, other movement is made. And what you see oftentimes is players get dealt for future G League capital. And these are players that are averaging really good numbers for their respective teams. But it comes down to fit. You know, I think you could talk about this with um, even looping back to the Isaiah Joe situation. Like, Isaiah Joe, if he would have stayed on the 76ers, no one would be talking about him in the same light because the talent would just kind of be hidden a little bit. Like, sure, he'd be on the 76ers roster. He might be in the rotation, but you just wouldn't have as many reps for him. Same goes for Charles Bassey, by the way. I think a lot of people have complained about the 76ers and how they manage those two guys. Ideally, they wouldn't have released him. Tough, tough decisions have to be made, and you know they're looking to contend. Sometimes you have to look towards those younger guys if you're making a push. Uh, Bassie and Joe ended up getting moved out. I think got, both of them really were NBA talent whenever they got waived. I thought the Thunder would get Bassie over Joe, but they went the other route, and it worked out well for them. Worked out well for the Spurs getting Bassie. But my main point is, a lot of times situations are what control success for some of these players and some of these teams. And for DJ Wilson, kind of where he is, he's playing in a great organization with the Blue. Last year, he got a call up to the Raptors and 
almost made the team, but with the Thunder just not having any open open roster spots, like you have to look towards other options uh, potentially. And you know they find a suitor in the Lakeland Magic where he can come in after injury and have an impressive stint there. And now he's returning with Xavier Simpson, not just a former OKC Blue teammate, but back with the Michigan Wolverines. They were together. So I think that's a great landing spot for him. OKC gets a future 2023 first round G League draft pick. Um, so that that's kind of how that shook out. You lose out a pivotal part of your team. I think one of the best, most polished players that have come through the OKC Blue and Wilson. And you kind of have to look towards other options. I think Robert Woodard now becomes that big presence around the basket for you instead of Wilson, who was able to stretch the floor and really kick it out a lot better. He's a really well-rounded piece for a G League team and even for an NBA bench as that 14th or 15th man. Another trade I want to mention, really doesn't matter, is Justin Jaworski. He's not with the Blue. He wasn't in this previous trade, but he was on the Blue last year. Ended up getting dealt out to Iowa, and then they traded the rights of Jaworski to the Lakeland Magic for future capital. The way this works is if you're overseas, you can trade returning player rights to where if they ever decide to come back to the G League, you have first dibs. And clearly, the Magic see something in Jaworski, and they've been doing a good job in terms of their international scouting because Jaworski has been one of the best guys in the LEB Oro. That's the second best division you could be in in Spain. So you know that um, it's pretty impressive. I mean, that league is not a joke by any stretch of the imagination. So he dropped most recently a 30-point game in that league. You don't see those types of efforts very often. He's the second best scorer in the league in terms of points right now. And a lot of it's coming from downtown. Absolute sharpshooter. He was that for the Blue last year. He was that with Lafayette. Um, And... I don't really know if he's returning to the G League in the near future. A lot of times you see guys move away from the G League and they kind of can climb the overseas ranks a little bit. He most definitely could do that if he so chose. I mean, he is on the fast track to getting an upgrade to a higher division based on how he's playing, Uh, but just a very impressive talent. And I thought it was worth mentioning that for those who have been keeping track of the Oklahoma City Blue. They now have an open spot with DJ Wilson. Also... Abdul Gaddy playing in the FIBA qualifiers. That opens up a roster spot for the time being, and Scotty Hobson being on injury reserve does as well. So the OKC Blue ended up picking up two new players, one of which through a contract signing, which was a Darius Avery, 26-year-old who played at Connor State, Loyola Chicago, and Central Oklahoma. He was playing forward overseas, but from what I gather, the league he was playing in, you know, it was one where if you're six foot seven, you're a pretty big guy there. You know, you're not playing guard. So he put up numbers most recently of 21.4 points and 8.4 rebounds. I don't really think that's the type of player he is necessarily. Probably will fall more as a three, uh, but he's shown some impressive stuff. And you're bringing in a guy who's familiar with Oklahoma. That being from Connors State initially, and then also Central Oklahoma as well. And then you bring in another player in Zeke Moore, who has experience in the state of Oklahoma. He was playing with the Santa Cruz Warriors and was actually averaging pretty good numbers this season before getting waived. OKC claims him. 
He averaged 12.8 points and 2.9 rebounds in 11 regular season games for the Warriors. Played at St. Louis, Tulsa, and SIU Edwardsville. So two small forward type of guys that you can plug in for the time being. We'll see what happens whenever everybody returns, but I think those are two pretty good pickups. Another pickup we saw, actually including the Santa Cruz Warriors, included Hung Jung Lee, one of the best three-point shooters in last year's draft class, top 100 candidate before getting injured in a pre-draft workout, finally returning from injury. Really happy to see that and and see him um, try to grind towards the NBA when you know, he really is that type of prospect. Very, very talented shooter and just a lot of talent in general in the G. But that's kind of where the team is currently. They made one other pickup in acquiring Chason Randall. He played in the blue season or the bubble season for the blue. Two games to his name, averaged 20 points there. And then he signed a two-way contract with the Orlando Magic. So he's a very polished point guard. Not a lot of mistakes for him, and he's a certified veteran. He's had stints overseas. He played in the NBL. Um, actually, I think it was after he played in the bubble, So, and with the Magic too. But he's been around a lot, and I think that's a really good presence to bring back to the team and pair up with Jamias Ramsey in that backcourt. So they have a pretty impressive team going into the second half of the regular season. They're not in the playoff hunt right now, but with a couple games going their way, they most definitely are back at it. And for the Oklahoma City Thunder, they are still pushing towards a play-in spot as we near the end of the regular season. But that is going to do it for today's episode, guys. I thank you all for listening, and I'll talk to you all next time. See ya. The big batch of changes they have made in the last 10 days. 